Welcome to Latitude 40, redesigning tourism on a small island. In the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We acknowledge the Palawa people of the Trawulawai Nation and recognise their continuing connection to the land, waters and culture of the islands. We pay our respect to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. The first thing you'll notice on Flinders and the Ferno group of islands is the breathtaking scenery. In every direction, what you see is like nothing else in the world. It's deeper than quiet beaches and coastlines, mountains and mist. These islands have a rich and dark history and an intensely passionate community that wants to reckon with its past and build the right future together. No one is here because it is the easiest place to live. Everyone is here because it's different. When something works on these islands, it tends to be small and special. As the rest of the world chases growth, we chase meaning. We have a complex relationship with change because we understand what it can bring. It's different here, and we make different invitations to visitors. For an unforgettable time on Flinders Island, learn to be one of us for a few days, a week, or the rest of your life. Slow down, listen, get lost, contribute. Don't try to change this place. Let this place change you. I'm Debbie Clark. And I'm Josie Major. We're honoured to be your hosts for this Latitude 40 series, sharing the stories of the Flinders Island community and the Island Away Regenerative Tourism Living Lab. My name's Peter Rhodes. I was born here in 1956. I did my primary education here, went to high school in Launceston, joined the public service and retired 12 years ago. Um, I always knew I'd come back here. It's um, where I grew up. uh, My brother says it's the second best place in the world (laughs) to live, so here I am. Lovely. Love to know what the first best place in the world is. He's still looking. Oh, I see. <laughs> oh, that's wonderful. I wonderful. love that. So, so tell us, tell us about Flinders Island. Why, you know, why is it the second best place in the world to live? Why is it unique, and um, and what do you love about it? Why is it unique? All places are unique, um, but some places are less average. So I think um, there are not many places like this left in Australia, uh, probably some remote country towns, but we're a remote community um, and we're a diverse community. So um, 
time or change doesn't happen as quick here as it does in other places. Um, and so that means, I guess, that time seems to go slower here. Um, but we've got a, a long history. We were here, first settlement south of Sydney, uh, when the sealing started. And um, it's been a an interesting history. It's um, I studied history, I guess, so I enjoy seeing how things have, have developed and understand why things develop that way. And that's just my thing, I guess. <laughs> um, what do I do here? I've been on the council for um, 10 years, 11 years this year. I'm secretary-treasurer of the local Lions Club and I'm actively involved with the Ferno Maritime History Association. We're hoping to create a, a history centre, a maritime history centre in Lady Barron, our second largest township, and uh, tell our story. Set a very rich and diverse one. Yeah, so tell us more about that. Where did the idea come from for this project and what is the story? Um, <laughs> a twenty-minute interview. Um, where did the idea come from? A friend of mine, uh, Jerry Willis, who went through much the same growing up as I did. We um, both our fathers were dairy farmers. We both went mutton birding with the family every year. So we grew up steeped in that social history of the island. Um, we both got elected to council on the same year and he happened to say at his first meeting that the next year was the 100th anniversary of the, the grounding of a boat called a Fastened. It's a, still a visible wreck off the coast of Vansittart Island. And mm. um, council wasn't that interested, so I said I'd give him a hand and we put on a display on the centenary. Um, we tracked down the figurehead and persuaded the owner to come over with it. He said he wouldn't let it out of his sight. And that was quite successful. And at the end of the display, he offered to sell it to us for um, $15,000. So wow. we decided wow. we'd do it. I got my hair cut and raised $6,000. Wasn't <laughs> <laughs> this seemed like a good cause? Still is. Nice. That's great. That's great. Mm. What do you, um, when you kind of envision, the future and what that could look like in terms of holding on to those those good parts of the island away and that way of life. What what does that look like to you for the island? It looks like a place where um, we have something for everyone. I mean, you think of a, I don't know, how do you say it? Uh, we've got, for example, scenery, we've got wildlife, we've got climate, good and bad or rough and smooth, um, and we've got a, a very interesting history. Um, which is sometimes it's the forefront of Australian history. Um, we were a critical link between the mainland and Tasmania for things like radio, um, air travel. Um, so, I don't know, maybe we've seen it all. So talk a bit more about your project, the Maritime Museum Project, and what you're hoping that's going to contribute to the community. Firstly, it's, it's a display. Um, we do have a very good museum here, and I see ourselves as different in as much as we want to, I guess, tell a story. We do have artefacts and those things, but 
our primary uh, focus is communicating our story to people who are interested, not just visitors, but to local people as well. People who come here only get snippets of our history um, and don't, or it's difficult for them to see it holistically as other people who've been here longer might, if that makes sense. So having a centre like that will, A, attract people who want to know about our history. We're holding a symposium, we're half booked out, which is good. It's good to attract people who have an interest in that, or it could be bird life or bushwalking or anything. And the other thing is that, as I said, it's um, a repository for locals and new people who come here to learn more about, um, you know, we had steamships here. We have a bit of a display on them in our centre, in our temporary display, and a lot of people didn't know that, but you lose that sight of how life was if you don't keep it or preserve it. The council's given us a building for a temporary display, so our objective now is to raise funds for a permanent display, and one of um, the fundraising ideas we stole was to let's have a history symposium, a maritime history symposium, uh, invite people, invite tourists from Tasmania who may want to know about that and have a history weekend. We've um, put together a package with the local accommodation and transport and travel people, give everyone a 10% discount. Uh, We have um, Michael Adam Smith, who's the son of Patsy Adam Smith, who wrote some books about us in the 50s, the Moonbird people, and one called There Was a Ship. And he's coming as our guest of honour. Another lady who did a thesis on Australian women authors, including Patsy, is going to be our keynote speaker. And we're hoping that um, we'll attract return visitors in future years. And we um, look forward to monitoring how successful we are in doing that and also boosting the local economy in Lady Barron, which um, doesn't have very much to attract visitors and tell its story. It's our port and um, has been, and it's a... The closest stepping off point to our other islands. So, yeah, it has a rich history as well. And we also have a digital museum where we're collecting all of our history in a digital format on a USB drive. We have a number of books written about the island. Jim Davey, who wrote Latitude 40. Stanley By wrote two books of reminiscences. And we've got the copyright or the permission to include those in a, in a digital museum, as well as all the, the writings of previous explorers and historians which are out of copyright, um, together with whatever history we have in our display. So this will be an attempt to monetize our history or to produce a product which is um, based on our history and will hopefully also attract people to come and see what we do and how we do it. Where can people find out uh, more about that, Peter? Can they find about, out about the symposium online? or? Uh, yes, on the council website. On the Flinders Council website, they are supporting us and doing an excellent assistance for us. It's in August from the 12th to the um, 14th. So we have a Friday night photographic exhibition and a fundraising symposium dinner, uh, which is going to be Thai. My wife is a Thai cook, so she's catering for that. And a community barbecue on the Sunday afternoon. So we're putting together a, a visitor package like that, but also for locals and getting together. Interesting to see how it goes. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, it sounds like such an interesting history, like being the sort of, like you say, the connector between 
the mainland and Tasmania in, in lots of ways. I think that there's, um, yeah, there's some really interesting history in there, clearly. Because we're a small community, we know our history. Oh, well, we know of our history. There's still a lot to ferret out from historical research. And that's probably where we see ourselves growing. We want to not just show what we know, we want to also be proactive, fill in the blanks. You know, we talk a lot in regenerative tourism about the importance of place and every place is so unique because of because of the history that shaped it, the people that are there, and that all informs how the community operates and, and how you move forward, right? Yes, most definitely. So what role do you see tourism playing in the future of a thriving Flinders? Going back to my definition, no role at all. I, I would see us perhaps attracting visitors, visitors who um, aren't expecting to be entertained or don't have expectations about the quality of service or the availability of a meal on a Sunday night, for example. These are things if you're visiting, you take with the territory. Visitors are people you, the same as you'd welcome people into your home. Um, they are people who you converse with, you learn from, they learn from you, you get on, you welcome them back sometimes. Uh, but, so that recurring visitation, that leads to people deciding that it's the second best place on the planet <laughs> and live here. So it may well just, it is important to sustain our population or to grow it to a some degree, undefined degree. It's a community decision, I'd say. But if we don't do that, then we're going to need to attract people to live here, raise families here, retire here, enjoy it. It's an interesting distinction you make between, you know, tourism or tourists and visitors. It's been a perennial debate in the local community going back a hundred years. <laughs> really? uh, there are people who want to oh yes, yeah. Um there are people who see it for what it is. Um some developers in our past attracted <laughs> my grandparents included from Victoria to come here because it was um still pioneering in those days. I'm only talking about nineteen ten when people would come here and live in tents, build their houses, settle. See, it makes me think of the conversation around guests and hosts, you know, versus tourists and visitors and sort of that's what you were just speaking to. Welcoming people into your home, right? If they're interesting enough or you get on that, well, yes, the same as um, when you go somewhere, you may be welcomed. Depends on how you travel and whatever, how you engage with the place you're going to. Um, a lot of our a lot of our visitors are relatives, friends, or whatever as well, and that's good for our economy as well. The more people here, the the more it generates a, an economic foundation for the general community. I mean, the island would be self-sustaining just growing cattle. I think we produce a significant amount of Tasmania's livestock at the moment. Um, but that's not your whole community and you've got to have diversity in um, services, I guess, mm. to um, keep that going. How do you see that being – how do you communicate that to 
potential visitors? Like if you're going to tell visitors about how, what it means to visit Flinders and to be a, be a visitor in the true sense that you're talking about, how would you kind of communicate that to them? I think it's inherent in understanding what the island away is in terms of welcoming visitors. But that doesn't mean to say you welcome people who, visitors have a degree of respect for you and your place. They don't come in and trash it or whatever. They may offer to help with the washing up, as I've said before. <laughs> but uh, people who just want to be um, entertained and whatever are going to be your most critical people when they leave because you didn't live up to their expectations. And I don't think anybody here wants to live up to anybody else's expectations but their own. Love that. Yes, we're proud of the place, etc. The The contrarian part of me says that banning tourists is a very good marketing ploy, um, but I'm not sort of taking it <laughs> in terms of that. <laughs> um, but Wow, what's there? Why are they? Why won't they let us? Why won't they let us go? <laughs> now, we, now we need to but go, we right? Will, <laughs> but you must in the same breath say we welcome visitors. And um, if we're defining what we consider our island away to be, we can define what we think visitors are. And we can also define what the type of tourist, the ugly Australian or whatever it is, I don't know, um, <laughs> doesn't come here. People don't like being gawked at. Mm-hmm. And... Some people see us as a curiosity, perhaps, and come here because of that, um, whereas other people were, I guess, more genuine in their desire to see something different and to happy to engage with the community at whatever level that may be. It may just be of the, the host of their accommodation or something like that, but, you know, the, the community is, like, is what it is and... Um, doesn't really want to change. No, that's we we often talk about that sort of shift of away from just serving exactly what the traveller or the visitor wants and and focusing more on what do the hosts need and how can tourism help to serve that. Um, what does the community, the host community, actually want from their from their visitors and from that visitor host experience. I think, as I said at the outset, this is quite a novel program and the community hasn't really been asked that before or given an opportunity. So this, there's um, the level of uptake or, as a consultant say, leaning into this is um, we're leaning the other way of the wind perhaps. It's a novel idea and I'm all in favour of... Um, community engagement, community decision-making. So from a a personal view, my hope is that this will um, encourage the community to to have its say and get engaged in the discussion, in the the debate, and at the same time protect the island away. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, it's a two-way street, right? Like you say, the program or the, the people coming in to try and work with you in this way also need the community to be able to or willing to step up and say, okay, we're going to trust that you're actually going to listen to us and here's what we think and to work through that process together to collaboratively. It's got to be um, more positive than what's happened in the past, which is probably not a lot of uh, involving people seriously. Yes, you've got local government and that, but when you're talking about way of life, um, seven people out of a thousand yeah. Shouldn't be determining in some ways. I mean, you want to, you want your community. 
I mean, everybody here's got an opinion, of course, and you, you've got to have a mechanism just for synthesizing all those opinions and coming to some form of community consensus, particularly about critical issues such as tourism, visitation, whatever. So to some of your fellow community members listening, Peter, what would you say to them? I mean, one of the one of the hopes with this podcast is that community members who are listening will, you know, who maybe who haven't come forward and been part of the process might do so. Oh, look, have your say. Get involved because it's the community that really should be shaping this project and getting the outcomes it wants. And if it doesn't, it's just another sitting back on the fence exercise and or being negative. You know, it's a, mm. it's a chance we have. Let's make the most of it. I've always been a supporter of this project because it does give that sort of opportunity. Um, and we don't want to become just a, a marketing narrative beyond the way I'm talking about. It's more than that. It's a way of life and it's something we're happy to share. Thank you for listening to Latitude 40, Redesigning Tourism on a Small Island. This podcast is part of the Island Away Project, which is being undertaken on Flinders Island by Designing Tourism. The project is funded by the Tasmanian Government. We also acknowledge Designing Tourism Partners, Flinders Council, Visit Northern Tasmania and the Tourism Collab. The music is by Judy Jacques and the introduction read by Jana Monon is an extract from the Flinders Island brand story, The Island Away. This podcast has been hosted and produced by Good Awaits, Debbie Clark and Josie Major, with audio production by Clary Macklin. Mm-hmm.